Well, it's good to see you today, and uh, it's exciting to see how the Lord is providing for you. Um, as we were traveling down today to minister here this morning, my mind went back to the first time I had an opportunity to serve you here, and that was when you were back at the elementary school. And, um, and so when I was thinking meet at the high school, I was thinking cafeteria, and this sure is a big improvement from the cafeteria. Um, we at Calvary Bible Church have just gone through a, uh, a renovation program in our main auditorium, and one of the things um, I reflected on as we're in that process is that the transition increases the appetite for how good it will be when you finally get to the destination. And uh, it stirs us, doesn't it, to expect uh, what God will provide. So I am so glad that you all will finally be able to settle down and you'll no longer be nomadic. Um, but you'll be settled and seeing it's going to be exciting to see how God will just allow you to use that facility in the years ahead for ministry uh, here in the area and, of course, around the world. So praise God for that. Well, I wonder if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 104. Um, initially, I was going to speak from Psalm 131, and I changed my mind at the beginning of last week, and I sent an email off. And the uh, title got correct, and I apologize for my change in transition. But we are in Psalm 104, reflecting on praising the glorious Creator. So let's turn in God's Word, and I will read. And if you would follow along in your scriptures, so please give your attention to the Word of God. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with a light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it would never be moved. You covered it with deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow from, for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees, the high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable. Living things, both small and great, there go the ships and Leviathan, which you form to play in it. These all look to you, to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. 
May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we give our attention to this psalm this morning, help us understand, but more than that, stir our hearts in praise of you, in love of you, in trust in you. May your spirit work and strengthen for the praise of your glory. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, this psalm is a psalm praising God as creator and praising God for his providence. And as I think about what this psalm is doing and and its structure, it it prompted me to think of something we do regularly. And I want to weave this in uh, as we consider the beginning of this psalm. And that is, I want to think about the tradition we have of praying before we eat. I wonder if you've thought about that much. wondered why do we do that Um, too often. When we pray before a meal, it, um, it becomes a ritual, devoid of, of meaning or significance. But that doesn't mean we should dispense with it. So at the outset, I want to suggest a way to think about it and why it is profitable for us to do. Eating is a necessary part of our lives. Um, God has caused us to be people needing to eat. And so there's this regular rhythm in our lives. We have rest. That's a rhythm, but also eating is a regular rhythm in our lives. And so praying before we eat is a way to establish a spiritual rhythm along with this very physical rhythm, this physical necessity. It's a time for us to pause. We pause from our industry, from our activity to eat. Along with that, it's an opportunity for us to pause from the subjects at hand, the things that are taking up our mind, to pause from those tasks, and to praise God, to praise God for the one who's been sustaining us over these previous hours or through the night, praising God for his providence in our productivity. So there's this matching of spiritual rhythm with physical rhythm. And that practice is very, very helpful for us, needful for us. You see, we have a problem It's a sin problem. And one of the core inclinations of our sin problem is in our fleshly, sinfully inclined hearts, we diminish God's presence and God's activity and we elevate our own. Now, as Christians gathered here, we submit to the truth of Scripture. And so we recognize pretty readily the root rebellion of what we might call materialistic naturalism. That is the view that looks out at the world and says all there is is what we see. It's the matter. It's the stuff. There's no eternal being that's created it. It's just matter that's existing. And by lots of accidents of nature over a long period of time, this matter has stumbled into what you see now. As Christians, we recognize that as fundamentally godless. But as Christians, we can slip into a mindset that minimizes God's sovereignty, that minimizes God's creative work, that minimizes his providential care. And we can see it as kind of a general, detached, kingly rule out there somewhere. And we look at the world, and we look at the world absent of God's creative work in God's providence, we see it as in a mechanical kind of way. Why does the earth spin and orbit the earth? Well, it's gravity. That's our answer. Gravity, mass, the laws of science. The water cycle, the hydrological cycle that we learn in elementary school. Rain, weather patterns, rivers, evaporation. That's why we have rain. Or crop production. Well, you sow, you fertilize, 
you tend, you reap. That's how we get our bread. So we have a tendency to think about creation in a very mechanical way. We give some lip service to God's work, but our tendency, even as Christians, is to minimize God's providential work in creation. And Psalm 104 is going to challenge that in a very profound way for us. It challenges this perspective. God is sovereign, yes. God is the creator, yes. God is creating still. He is providentially at work. He is particularly, actively maintaining, providing, caring for, working in his creation in every detail. And not just detail out there. If he's providentially at work in every detail, that means every detail in my life as well. So we can personalize that. God particularly and personally is at work in the smallest, most intricate details of our lives. God's providential care is personal. And what you notice something in the first verse here that is a hint towards the, the psalmist's perspective here. He's, he begins, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God. Notice that personal connection there that the psalmist views. It's not just a God out there, it's his, his God. And there's this implication that it's, it's his God in a personal way, and he's addressing this God who is involved in his life also in a personal and an individual way. We also see that this psalm is not a corporate psalm. It's not we's and us's. It's my God. The, the psalmist is, is thinking here. He's singing here. He's reflecting here in a very personal, individual way. The, the, the psalmist here is thinking of himself before God in this grand creation. He's not lost in the creation. He considers himself very personally connected to the Creator who is providentially at work in this world. So in the expansiveness of the creation, the psalmist sees himself personally relating to the King, the Creator, the sovereign ruler over all things. So our inclination is not to do this. Our inclination is not to praise God. Our inclination is not to conceive of ourselves in creation before God in these ways. I want you to see how the, the uh, psalmist here begins and ends this psalm. He begins and ends with a self-exhortation. And the self-exhortation has this uh, implied warning that goes along with it. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We might say, self be sure you're speaking well of God. My soul, self, be sure you have a, a frame, a perspective, a posture of praise to God. He says it at the beginning of this psalm, and he says it at the end. There is to be a watchfulness. There needs to be a watchfulness. There needs to be this self-exhortation because... We forget. We have this horrible tendency to forget to praise God for who He is and how He is working in all the details of creation. So this psalm is a model for us. I don't know if you've had this experience. Um, maybe you're at work. You have a task at hand. It's a problem you're solving. Uh, maybe you're interacting with people. You're trying to sell something. Maybe you're driving down the road and you think something happens and you think, hey, God, God exists. I, I've been so focused. I kind of, uh, my, my mind has wandered. My mind has been focused on other things. I'm before God. God is the creator. What do you do in that moment? How do you cultivate your heart? How do you incline your heart? Or maybe it's the beginning of the day or the end of a day. How do you incline your heart? to have this posture of worship. And so as you look at the psalm, this is a model for us. There's a guide for us to, to stimulate and to stir up our heart in worship and in praise. 
Well, before we address ourselves to the psalm in detail, there's one more thing I want to draw your attention to. One thing I want you to have in the back of your mind as we go through this psalm, and that is we should read this psalm very much from a Trinitarian perspective. God, the God we worship, the God who is the creator, is the three-in-one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are at work in creation. There are hints of the threeness of God, the Trinity of God in the Old Testament. But the Trinity of God is made explicit in the incarnation, in God's salvific plan, in time. And this side of the coming of Christ, Christ's resurrection and the giving of the Spirit, we have a fuller perception, we have a fuller understanding. The New Testament speaks in specific ways of the Trinity that we don't see as clearly in the Old Testament. And so we see in the New Testament, John 1, um, we see in Colossians 1 that all things were made through God, and we can also say all things were made through the Word, who is Christ. And we look to the Spirit, the one who breathes life, gives life, sustains life. So I want to have in the back of your mind this conception of God as the three in one. So as we come to this psalm, the first point I want us to see here is the reason we ought to praise God. The reason we ought to praise God. Here it is. O Lord, my God, you are very great. That's why we should praise God. Because he is very great. He addresses this to God and he gives a name in our Bibles that says the Lord. It's a way of notating this uh, Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. Um, I like to use the word Yahweh because when I use the word Lord, it kind of has this detached sense as a title. But Yahweh is a name. I am a human. Yahweh is a God. My name is Rodney. His name is Yahweh. And so when that happens in this text, I'm going to use the term Yahweh. So here it is. Yahweh, my God, you are very great. How does a creature, how does a small person, how do we conceive of greatness? How how do we stir up our mind to be impressed with greatness? Well, let's follow along here. The psalmist goes on, you are clothed with splendor and majesty. You know, the the clothes we wear reflect something of who we are. They're not who we are, but they reflect something of who we are. This great God, he is clothed in splendor and majesty. When we're confronted with splendor and majesty, we pause. We're impressed. Maybe it's intimidating. But even splendor and majesty, how do you conceive of splendor and majesty, the splendor and majesty of the great God? It's almost like you can see the psalmist using, kind of wrestling, God, you're great, you're worthy of praise, you're clothed in splendor and majesty. And it's almost like the psalmist is thinking, how do I wrap my mind around splendor and majesty? His mind goes... And he connects splendor and majesty with light in verse 2. Covering yourself. Another way of saying clothing yourself with light. Covering yourself with light as with a garment. The psalmist here is trying to stir up his understanding, his, his sense of splendor and his connecting with light. Which shouldn't be surprising. Jesus, the Word who came In flesh, we read in John 1, came as the light of the world. And we read in Revelation that there's no more sun. There doesn't need to be a sun on this recreated earth because God is the God who gives eternal light. So it shouldn't be surprising that the inspired author connects the glory and the splendor and the majesty of God with light. Well, what do we do with that? How does light stir us up to consider the splendor and majesty of God? It's almost like the author is thinking about standing outside on a sunny day. And he's thinking about light. How might we 
How might we use what we experience of light to lead us in to consider the greatness and the splendor and the majesty of God? Well, light is expansive. When you're in the middle of the day and the sun is shining, it's everywhere. It's all over. It's far and wide. On a hot day, you might find a bit of shade, but all the shade does is shade you from the sun. You can't actually escape or turn off the sun. It's everywhere. It's expansive. It's unending. We might even say unrelenting in its intensity. It just keeps shining from the sun. Keeps shining. Keeps shining. God's splendor, God's majesty is expansive. It's enduring. It doesn't wear out. It's not exhausted. It's life-giving. Plants grow because of sun. Humans thrive because of sun. Sun is is life-giving. Light is life-giving. It's satisfying. Now, the other week, I had to go to the post office. It was, um, I don't know, maybe around freezing with wind chill. And I walked into the post office and the sun was shining straight through the large glass area there in the post office. And I thought, wow, I could feel the warmth. Out Out of the wind, out of the cold, felt the warmth, and I just went, oh, that feels good. And I commented to the postmaster, that feels good. Light is satisfying. There's something about God's splendor which is attractive. We, we want it. We, we sense there's something satisfying about the greatness and splendor and majesty of God. We want to be in His presence. But it's dangerous. The sun, in its intensity, if you don't watch it, can kill you. It's not to be trifled with. You can't manage it. There's something slightly intimidating. How much more about the glory of God? Don't be presumptuous. You are merely a creature. As attractive, as satisfying as the glory of God is, there's a sense of danger with God's glory. It's fascinating. It's nuanced. Maybe it's the the light through the rain creating a rainbow. Or the light glistening off a pond. There's something intriguing about the way light works. It's uncontainable. You can't bottle up the light. There is no technology that we have to save light. We have to change it. Solar panels, batteries... We, we can't bottle up light. It's uncontainable. It's, it's there. It's usable to us in some way. But it's always outside of our control. It's mysterious. It's beautiful. Maybe that's connected with fascinating. Light is beautiful. It, it, and it reveals beauty. Without light, no vision. No color. So, so here, here is the, um, the author here trying to stir up his mind, excite his imagination. The glory of God. How great is that? He's clothed with splendor and majesty, like light in all its complexity and glory and beauty. If that is light, oh Lord, how great you are. Yahweh, you are great. If light is your garment... How majestic you are. How great you are. Well, the author is not satisfied there. He wants to keep thinking of ways to stimulate his imagination about the greatness of God. And so he goes on. He says he is stretching out the heavens like a tent. I think most of us have been tenting. Depends on how large your family is. Or how rustic. Or technological, your um, camping experience is. Your tent is rolled up. You take it out of the bag. And before you set it up, you kind of shake it out, right? And it goes out, you know, six feet maybe. That's the image here. Here's God. There's the, the galaxies. It just shakes it. And it rolls out. 
How great must God be if, if he just creates the galaxies like he'd roll out a tent curtain? How great is God? I can imagine the psalmist thinking about the nights. He's looked up at the stars, their expansiveness, their beauty. How great is God? Here's his little candle, his oil lamp. And here is God, like a tent, unfurling the starry heavens. He goes on. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. This is a little hard, I think, to understand exactly what the psalmist is doing here. I think here's where he's going. We have a house. We put some foundations down, put some walls up. We have, um, even in most of our houses, are two levels, and our living is on the upper level. You, you, you build a house, you have some foundations, and on the upper level is your home. You go up some stairs, and there it is. Like, Yahweh, if I could picture you having a home, if I could picture you having a chamber, a room somewhere, it would be like it's sitting on the upper atmosphere, up there. That's like your, your little room. How great you are. You make clouds. His, he makes his clouds chariots. We've all had this experience. We're, we're outside. It's a beautiful sunny day. There are some, some kind of fluffy clouds. And there's a good wind. And you kind of see the cloud just shooting across the skyline. It's like God riding a chariot. There it is. How great is God if, if, if clouds are like a chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. Again, the strength, the power of wind. Yeah, that's, that's just like something underneath God. Why should we praise God? Because God is great. And if we want our praise to be excited... If we want our praise to be energetic, if we want our praise to be animated, here's how we invest our God-given imagination. We take these things that are in creation, that reflect something of who God is and His greatness, and it stirs us. It sets our heart aflame in praise. Praise God because He is great. So we ought to praise God. And the author has given a reason why we ought to praise God. But now he's going to move on and consider God in his activity in creation and in this world. So if we look at verses 5 through 9, we see God giving stability to creation. God giving stability to creation in 5 through 9. He sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Here it is, God creates the earth and there it is, firm, established, immovable by God's command and providence. Now it seems to me that the author here is reflecting on the earth in totality. He's going to think a little more about the the surface, as it were, of the earth. It seems to me here he is considering the planet in its totality. Not sure how much scientific knowledge the psalmist had. But inspired by God, he is speaking a truth that God has established the position and the stability of the earth. Now, some will look at the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, and they'll look at it and they'll say something like this. According to the knowledge that we have and the science that we have, we know a couple of things. You can't have light and day and night without the sun. And we know you can't have the earth doing really anything apart from its relationship to the sun. But as we read the creation narrative, we see a couple of things happening. We see the earth, we see day and night and light before the sun. We might say, is this even possible? My, my first point of reference would be the revelation where the earth in its recreated form exists without sun in eternal light, no night. It's possible. 
But secondly, I see a hint here in this verse. God sets the earth. He doesn't need the sun to set the earth up. That's how powerful he is. And he has established, he's given a firmness and a settledness to the earth. But that's not the only thing the author's mind goes to as he considers the stability God gives creation. He goes on. You covered it, the earth, with deep as with garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. Now, is this referring to the water covering the earth at the beginning of creation or the water covering the earth after the, uh, at the flood? Seems to me this would be referring to the flood. Why? At the end of chapter, uh, verse 9, he says that they might not again cover the earth. There's definitiveness here, which matches what God says to Noah in Genesis. God gives stability to the earth and he gives stability, as it were, or firmness to the location of the oceans. Never again will all the earth be flooded with water. Now we might point to some observations of science, but ultimately we point to God because he has said, this is so, and it shall be, and this is the way it will work. So in verses 5 through 9, we see God giving stability to creation, uh, to to the earth in, in his creating Initial and his containing and continuing and in his providence. We also see God sustains all parts of creation in verses 10 through 18. He first looks to the supply of water in verses 10 through 13. You make springs gush forth. They give drink. They give drink to the animals and the, and the birds From your lofty abode, verse 13, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. See, God is still working. And the the author points to God as the one who is the cause of water. We look to the hydrological cycle as we might say the intermediary workings. But why does it keep working? Because God sustains its continuing working. He's established the principle and he's directly at work in it. He's not one who stands back, winds up the clock, kind of like a deistic perspective, and lets it run. He is running the clock. He designed the clock. He designed the clock to work a certain way and he continues to keep the clock working, as it were, that way, if we want to use that analogy. So God sustains all parts of creation. He supplies water. Then verses 14 through 15, he supplies sustenance. So he gives us the liquid we need for survival. He gives us the food we need for survival. Verses 14 and 15. Look at verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock. The sheep, the cows, they graze. They have grass to feed on. Because God is giving them grass. And Lord, you cause the plants for man to continue growing. You, you, you sustain that. That we may bring forth food from the earth. So verse 14 is particularly looking, can we say, at the bare essentials of provision. Verse 14 is survival. But I like what the psalmist does next. God just doesn't give us survival. You know, he could have said, this is against his nature, but hypothetically, he could have said, I'm going to have something grow that's called cardboard, and you'll get all the nutrients you need through cardboard, absent of taste buds. But he hasn't done that, has he? He's given us taste buds, and he's given us food that provides for us, and it's tasty, But he does something beyond provision for needs. That's what verse 15 is about. He's not repeating himself. He's going a step above mere provision. Look at verse 15. What else does God provide? 
wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread to strengthen man's heart. He's, he's thinking about some crops that happen throughout the year. Grapevines, olive trees, wheat or barley. And he's reflecting on the greatness of God. God sustaining. But beyond that, God giving good and beautiful and satisfying things. Wine to bring joy, to, to gladden the heart. He could have just given us water. But he gave grapes that make wine, that bring joy. Olive oil to beautify and to give health. Bread. Bread not just to strengthen the body or to satisfy the stomach. Look at the words there. And bread to strengthen man's heart. How about we we think about this? Maybe strengthen resolve. Or energize for life. You know, I think we've all been in a place where we've been working hard and we're hungry. And we're weary. Like, I'm done. I just want to quit. Forget the task. It can remain unfinished. And then you get some food in you. And your heart is strengthened. You're like, that's it. I'm not going to give up. I'm going to finish the task. What's happened? Well, your body has been strengthened, but your heart, your heart has been strengthened too in the resolves, in the needs, in the tasks of life. Oh, God is good. God is great. He gives our needs through water. He supplies us with our daily sustenance, but beyond that with good things. Now, what he's not saying here is he's given wine and oil and food for self-indulgence, for gluttony, for drunkenness, for greed, for indifference to other needs. But that's not the purview of his thinking. That's kind of an assumption there. But he is looking at these things and he's celebrating. He's, he's, He's thankful. He's praising I think of what we read in uh, 1 Timothy. You might want to turn there for a moment. 1 Timothy and chapter 4 and verse 3. Uh, here Paul is addressing um, people who are denying certain things about the nature of God and who God works and how he works. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 3, he's continuing on thinking about these false teachers who forbid marriage because that's holy. And require abstinence from certain foods. Because that is holiness. No. Look at how Paul addresses this. These people who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. How should we think about this? These foods. That God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. If it is received with thanksgiving... For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Receive these things from God and praise Him. Great is God, worthy of praise, because He sustains all parts of creation. Well, you can see the psalmist kind of moving in his thinking. God provides water for sustenance, food for sustenance, and cream on top. And God ensures habitation. Verses 16 through 18. Uh, He considers the animals. God waters trees for birds to build their nests in. He gives mountains for those animals who live in the mountains to have a habitation. And what's Jesus say? To, To take what he says on the Sermon on the Mount and kind of pull it in here. If God so cares for some little birds to make nests in big trees... And those odd animals that hang up in those high mountain crags. He's the God who allows us to have habitation as well. God is the God who sustains all parts of creation. For the animals, of course, for us as well. 
while the author moves on. He's not satisfied yet. He, he wants to keep grabbing things in creation to stir his imagination more. Because he's not satisfied yet. I want to praise this great God more. Well, God regulates time and gives life rhythms. Verses 19 through 23. Look at verse 19. God made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. There's a, there's a darkness and light. There's a day and there's a night. It gives these rhythms in our lives. And then there's the seasons that we experience. God here is, is regulating these times. Why did it? Why was there morning this morning? You can say, well, because the sun rose. Why did the sun rise? Well, it didn't technically rise. The moon, the, the earth kept spinning and it spun round so that our place on the earth was at a place that received the sunlight. All that is true. And it happened this morning, like it has happened so many other mornings, because God is faithfully regulating time. Praise God. The sun has risen again. And that points to God, the regulator of all time. Well, it's not just time that God regulates, but he regulates the rhythms of life. Those animals that like to hunt at night, the sun goes down and they're, they're thinking, great, I'm hungry. And we're thinking, great, I'm tired. And the sun rises and we go into the day and we go through our activities. Thank you, Lord. You give us these reg. These regular times, these rhythms of life, it's from God. God regulates time. Have you ever felt yourself, maybe at the end of the day, frustrated? God, I wish there was 36 hours of daylight and I could get all the sleep I needed in one. In fact, let's do away with sleep. Ah, There's mystery in sleep. There's mystery in these regulations of time that God is put upon us don't resent it praise god for it see his hand of mercy and grace his providence in our lives god is the god who gives stability to creation who sustains all parts of creation he's the god who regulates time and life rhythms the psalmist pauses here Because he's going to give us a second statement for the reason we ought to praise God. Verse 24 through 26. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. Here's the author. God, I, I can't get to it all. I can't consider all the ways your character and your glory, your greatness is displayed in creation. I'm going to run out of time. I don't even know it all. But how do I wrap myself even around God's greatness and my finitude? He's wrestling with this. God's works are manifold. His works, his workings, his providences are manifold. The earth is full of your creatures. And you can see the psalmist, as it were. Okay, how do I think about innumerable? How do I think about uncountable? He goes to the ocean. He thinks about the ocean, filled with all kinds of ocean-living animals. It's like, there's no way I can ever count all those fish. I could, maybe I'll catch a few. But how big is the ocean? It's, it's immense. I can't even wrap myself, I can't even wrap my mind around the, the surface area of the ocean, let alone all those creatures in the ocean. He thinks of the boat, as it were, a bit of bark floating on this expanse of water. Here is the ship. Here is man's effort at dominating the ocean. I like that, right? Just like a bit of bark. I don't know if you've flown over the ocean on an airplane, and you see one of those huge container ships or huge oil tankers, and you look down. It's just a speck. If there wasn't the wake behind it, you'd have trouble picking it out. And there is one of God's creatures, the great animal Leviathan, just playing, having fun. How manifold is God's works? How immense, uncountable, expansive is his wisdom. He ought to be praised. He's worthy of our praise. 
is worthy of our marvel. We ought to be stopped in our tracks as we look out at creation and consider the greatness of the Creator. Well, the psalmist goes on. He wants to think of more things in creation to stir up a heart of worship. Verse 27, he looks at God governing all of, human, all of animal life. Verse 27, God governing all animal life. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. I want you to see here how, how the author is using particular words to convey God's intimate, particular, we might even say immediate activity in creation, the opening of the hand. It's like a pet, right? You open your hand to feed your pet. It's like God feeding all the innumerable animals in creation. Verse 30, when you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. Why do animals die? For lots of reasons. For lots of observable reasons. But the ultimate reason any animal dies is because God purposes and wills it. Why is any animal born? Well, We've watched enough nature programs to know how that works, haven't we? And all the different kinds of animals. No, that's just what animals do. That's not why life exists. Life exists because God wills it, particularly, individually. How many details is that? Innumerable How expansive, how great is God if he is particularly at work in every one of those particular details? With our modern science, maybe the psalmist would have reflected on the atom. We're still trying to figure out exactly all the parts and details of what makes an atom. There is not one atom that God is not particularly concerned about every electron. And the makeup of the nucleus of every atom. God is particularly and specifically willing the existence of everything to its minutest detail. How great is God? Great. Well, the author now comes to the final statement for the reason we ought to praise God in verses 31 through 35. May the glory of Yahweh endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Yahweh is the God, the one true God, the God of glory, the God of splendor and majesty and power. He's creating. He's sustaining. But there's some danger There's a sense of possible threat. We read that in verse 32. He looks on the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I think the author here is talking about earthquakes. He looks at the earth. 7.1. He touches a mountain. Volcano. I think there's pictures there. Earthquakes are pretty intimidating. Volcanoes are intimidating. God is intimidating. He's sustaining. He's creating. But there's something about Him which ought to cause us to consider with care His nature and glory. But overall, His general disposition, we might say, is joy. We read that in the last part of verse 31. May Yahweh rejoice in his works. I've reflected on this. Why? Why does God rejoice in his works? I can stumble across some inklings of an idea. But I realized I must be careful how I go about that. 
At the very least, I want to say this. The nature of God is that he is able and does create. And by his very nature, he rejoices in the fruit of his work. He creates and he has joy. We can't ever fully press into the the nature of God and his divinity. But God has joy as he considers his creation. And I was trying to think about this. And I think God has given us lots of ways. When you work at something, maybe it's a tapestry, maybe it's a woodcraft, maybe you're fixing a car. There's some satisfaction. But I think of the joy there is when you have a child. We just had our fifth child, and I'm reminded of this. Here, here is this new person from us. I know we didn't create him, but we participated in that creative process in some way. And as we look at this baby, utterly dependent upon us for care, for provision, there is such joy in our hearts as we see this person. And we might say, why do I have joy? I do. I do, because I'm made in the image of God. And here is God rejoicing in his creation, overflowing in joy as he sees all that he has done. What should be our response as we look at creation that gives God joy? Let's read on, verse 33. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will, I resolve to. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation, may the use of my imagination be pleasing to God. God, you've seen me wrestling to grasp something of your glory as I gaze into your creation. May you be pleased with my effort here. I rejoice in you. God has joy in his creation. And if we rightly see his creation, the response is joy in the creator. But then we come to a jolting statement in verse 35. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. At first, it seems out of place. Um, This is a, we might say, this is a feel-good psalm, and this is a downer. Right? Right at the end. What's going on here? It feels out of place. It kind of interrupts the natural flow, it seems. I don't think it does. The psalmist is drawing a hard contrast here to impress his mind and those who will read this song in the future. Look at verse 34 again. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. God is pleased with those who rejoice in him and praise him as they experience his goodness and reflect on his glory in creation. How utterly horrible, scandalous, and rebellious is it that a creature should exist in this world filled with innumerable displays of the greatness and the glory of God and not reflect in any way on who he is in his grandeur, in his glory, in his power, in his satisfying providence. There is a greatness of rebellion in unthankfulness. Let me just go to two passages to reflect on this for a moment. Back in Psalm 97. In verse 6, Psalm 97 and 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshippers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. And then in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1 here, verse 18 
The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It is a great sin. How seriousness ought we to take the thrust or, or the implications of this psalm very seriously? Soul, self, you ought to be praising the great and glorious God. You ought to give your energy and your mind to meditating upon Him. Consider His creation. And as it were, go from that and lead back up to reflect on the glory and the greatness of our God. So as the psalmist begins, so he closes. Self, bless the Lord. Speak well of the Lord. Praise the Lord. I'll praise. I'll praise here. I'll praise is not what it ought to be. Because our joy in him is not what it ought to be. Because we fail to attentively consider how the creation points us to the creator. The God of glory. The God who is pervasively and intricately, providentially at work in this world. Let us pray. Oh, Father, there's a a sense of repentance that's necessary as we consider this psalm. May we receive the right admonishment that you have given us that we can be so easily distracted, that we invest our mental space, the faculty of our imagination in inferior ways. And we wonder why we do not love you like we ought We wonder why we struggle with fear and worry and despondency, the anxieties of life. We, in fact, give our our mind to these worries and fears. Lord, we repent for not meditating upon you like we should. Lord, I thank you for your grace, that you have saved us. And and as your children, we have not completely forgotten you. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity of Sundays for us to gather and to worship, to stir one another up, to remind one another. Lord, I thank you for the rhythm of eating so that we might be reminded to pause and consider your providential, particular, individual working in our lives and in this world. Oh, Father God, you are great. You are glorious. You are the creator. And there's nothing, Father, in this world that you have created apart from your Son, the Word. And through the powerful activity and sustaining work of your Spirit, we praise you, O God, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we ask, by your graciousness, the gracious working of your spirit, that you would help us this week. Help us to be people who pause to reflect and to worship. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for grace. You are worthy of praise and we praise you. In the name of Christ. Amen. Let me close by reading the benediction that we find at the end of Hebrews. Now may the 
God of peace who brought him from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.